This episode is part two of the previous episode, How to Date, How to Marry, with Dr. Michael Smalley. That episode is episode 25. This is episode 26. So if you did not hear episode 25, you probably want to go back and listen to that one before you listen to this one, because this is a continuation of episode 25. Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewire, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. Welcome to Relationship Rewire. We've got a, a returning guest for part two of our last podcast, Dr. Michael Smalley, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to take the time to do the intro that we did last time, but uh, Michael Smalley, Dr. Michael Smalley is the director. Is it the director? What do we, what do you call your position? CEO. The CEO. The big man. The big the boss man. The big, the big boss man of the Smalley Institute, which you may be familiar with, was founded by Dr. Stuart Smalley, who's uh, was yeah. from uh, Saturday Night Live. And, and his uh, probably your, his best known statement is, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough and doggone it. People like me. Yes. So he was a estranged uncle, <laughs> estranged uncle. And so yeah. how, how did, how did it get passed on from, because uh, Stuart Smalley ended up, uh, he's, he's serving several decades now, right? In, in prison somewhere. Yeah. I don't think life turned out well for Al Franken. <laughs> he made some poor choices. He was, in fact, not good enough or smart enough. <laughs> oh, boy. So, no, uh, actually, Dr. Gary Smalley is the founder of the Smalley Institute. And Dr. Gary Smalley, you may have read several of his books. Um, he went on to Lord uh, a year and a half ago, has it been now? Uh, two years, in two March, years. March 6th of oh, wow. 2016. And, uh, but, uh, his sons have worked with him for, oh, probably two or three decades now. And, um, so, uh, Michael is, is now the CEO of the Smalley Institute, which is based now down in the Houston area, correct? Yes. I yeah. married a Texan and I, I only kept her away about seven no, about, no, actually more like nine, 10 years. And then it was like enough. She needed to be back in the motherland. Up there in, in Branson is where you were yeah. before, right? Yeah. Yeah. The mother, well, I, I, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. I dragged her all over the place. So grad school and then she did grad school and, and then seven years in Branson. And then she finally got to come back home. Yeah, I, I drug my wife up to Colorado for seven years, the first first seven years of our marriage. And so I, I, I got to play around in the mountains for seven years, and we had to come back here to be my family. So I get it. But the great nation of Texas has quite a pull on its natives. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, I want to jump right into some questions with you, Mike. Oh, well, if, hey. I want you, you're, you, you were telling me you've got some uh, big things coming up, travels. You're going to S South Africa for a couple months this summer. and I am going to be doing some training there. We actually have people that do our intensives in South Africa. And 
Wow. I'll be in Mexico here in May and training our first Spanish speaking folks to be able to do intensives and I'm hoping that the kind of key lady uh, could even become a trainer for those of Spanish speaking orientation. So it's, it's yeah, a lot of exciting stuff coming up. That's great. And uh, Baton Rouge and DC in the next couple of weeks to do some things there too. Yeah. Doing the comedy of love stuff. So that's our, that's my live event that can either be a date night or a whole weekend. But I kind of focus on fun stories. So my dad, my dad was quite the storyteller, and that's what I grew up with. And and now that's primarily the mode of which I teach. You know, I kind of feel like you know a lot of guys. My brother would actually be one of them, who when we we used to switch off events early, 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 like 20 years ago. And one event I would do the personality session, and then he'd do the personality session the next event. And when I would do it, I had seven slides total for a 45 minute to an hour talk. And my brother had 93. <laughs> He's a little more detailed. 93. <laughs> I don't even know how you scroll through 93 slides in, in <laughs> under an hour. So I, I like to teach with stories. I think people remember stories far better than, than uh, points or stories or, or uh, slides. Yeah, it's interesting you brought that up. I was just saying that to uh, the group this this past weekend up Dallas area that you know a lot of people just just give me the just give me the facts, just give me um, you know concept points and um, and I I actually said to somebody who asked a question along those lines, you know, what, why do you have to tell these stories? Data doesn't doesn't change the heart. Uh, you know, facts no. don't change the heart. I think story is important. Living, living a story especially is what really changes hearts. Well, uh, yeah, your dad, uh, the last time I heard him speak, it's probably been six years ago or so, he came down to San Antonio and, and spoke at a big date night that was so probably a thousand people were at this. He started off by talking about the, the, the week before he had been with your mom doing a uh, some some kind of marriage thing in Hawaii and they'd gotten there a few days early to enjoy Hawaii, but they got an argument on the way from the airport to the hotel. And so for the first two days, they didn't talk to each other. And yeah, that, that was not abnormal. <laughs> but I, I just thought it was great because, you know, it, it's just so encouraging. A lot of people, they, they look to us so-called marriage experts and think that we got it all together and and we're humans and we we get selfish and we do things exactly opposite of what we teach sometimes and and that's just uh, when you when you're sharing life with a person it's going to get messy it does and by far the best compliment i get or my wife and i get when we do an event is when people come up and go oh my gosh you're just like us <laughs> we had no idea and you guys do this for a living and you're as messed up as we are. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's our favorite kind of feedback because we've done our job. We don't, we're, we don't hold anything back. I mean, what's the point? And I, and, and honestly, you know, if, if someone's a, a believer in Jesus Christ, it's like, he warned us. He's like, it's not going to be easy. Right. We're going to be, it's going to be hard. There's going to be suffering. And so I'm, I, I always kind of chuckle when, when someone who 
who believes in Christ is shocked and dismayed by trouble. It's like, no, that's inevitable. It's kind of, what do we do and how do we move forward? So life is not about perfection. It's really about how do I repair the inevitable damage that I'm going to do many times, not even intentionally. Exactly. Not like people wake up. I mean, sociopaths, they'll (laughs) wake up and they really do want to harm others. But there's not, you know, the the majority of us are not sociopaths. Right. So we can, you know, we, we need to stop assuming that our spouse is doing things intentionally to hurt us. They're just naturally gifted at it. Yeah, <laughs> because they're humans. Yeah, it's, it's so yep. important because so many people are just, uh, they're, they're spending so much of their time in the future of when we arrive, you know, relationally, financially, and, and, and you, you know, you, you just really don't ever arrive, not this side of the grave. And, and, no. and the, the whole concept that you're going to get there to where you're, Marriage is just always just wonderful and uh, blissful. Just really help keeps you from from working through the moment and enjoying the moment. And yeah, well, I got some questions for you, Michael. All right, let's hit it. So, uh, if you those those of you who are listening, if you didn't uh, listen to the first uh, part of this part one of this episode, go back. And listen to that first before you listen to this, because this is really that we we got finished with wrapped up the recording on that. And there just seemed to be a lot of unanswered questions. Seemed like we had just scratched the surface on some of this. We were talking about, you know, what, uh, how to date, who to date, what, what to, when to date, when to start dating. And so part of this is geared towards helping parents deal uh, with their teenagers and, and children who are starting to think about dating or who are dating, but also for the single person who's out there and still looking or thinking about looking. And we, we thought we'd give some, some helpful points to think about. And uh, so I'm going to jump right in with this question. You, and you answered this a little bit last time, but so what is appropriate for dating? Like where? Where to date? What what to do when when you're dating? And and I'm talking more more specifically as a teenager. So this would be more directed to the parents and helping them. But you know, if if a teenager is listening to and uh, you you talked about you know age is not necessary. If you get focused on age, then you're focused on the wrong thing. So you might want to say a little bit about that. But then then you know where and what what kind of dating is appropriate and where to go and and how to structure that. Yeah, I I mean, to highlight again, what really, really matters is whether your child or teenager is ready to date. So if they're not mature enough and they're not, they're showing you in all sorts of different areas that they have difficulty making good choices, (laughs) then I, I wouldn't encourage dating. Now, how I approach it, though, if I don't think my teenager, and I had one, so one of them. He, he was not mature and he was not ready and he made some poor choices, especially with girls. And it's not that you forbid a teenager to date. I, I have, I've never fully, that's kind of goofy. I mean, it's like our, our job as a parent is to prepare a, a, a little person to grow up and roughly around 18, leave the home as a fully matured adult. 
But if we're going to lord over them, especially in the teenage years, and we're not going to let them make mistakes or we're not going to hold them accountable to their decisions, then we're just relate, you know, we're going to release someone. You know, I went to college at Baylor University and one of the studies I, I got there, but it was so fascinating because it was supposed to be the super Christian Baptist university. And I mean, I'd never seen more drinking in my life when I got to Baylor and it was like these kids that were stifled and I'm not, you know, advocating, go let your kids drink and get drunk. But the problem is if they're never allowed to make choices and if they're never allowed to fail, once they get out of the home, they go crazy. Oh yeah. They have freedom. They have freedom for the first time and they have no idea how to handle it. And so with my, so for example, with my oldest child, when he was a teenager and he had not shown me a maturity or that he was ready to be able to honor God and honor girls in a dating relationship, I didn't forbid him to date, but he also didn't get my car. So <laughs> yeah. he, you know, we, we had this Toyota Camry that we kept that, you know, when, when he turned 16, that we were going to allow him to use. And it was an extra car. It was a third vehicle. And we were happy to do that as long as he could handle the boundaries that come with the car. And those boundaries included, obviously, drinking and whatever, you know, and girls even, though. And, right. and he, he, he lasted two months with that privilege. <laughs> but when I, when I said, hey, listen, you're, 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 not, you're, not, you're choosing not to honor the boundaries we put up to have the privilege of driving this car. So I'm, I'm taking the car back. Now, listen, you're 16. If you want to work and purchase a car and pay for the insurance and gas, you're welcome to do that. Sure. That's a very different conversation. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, it's goofy to sit there like they're 16. They're, they're literally less than two years away from leaving your home. Like at this point, if, if as a parent, you have the need to be hyper controlling, then you've missed, man, your, your opportunity is gone at that point. So for me, it was, Hey, he, if he wants to do it and he wants to pay for his own fee, I'm not going to prevent him from doing that. I'm just not going to pay for it. Right. Right. And same, like with a smartphone, <laughs> you know, exactly. I think, I think he lost his phone. <laughs> a lot of uh, teenagers just kind of think, well, at a certain age, I, it's my right to have a smartphone and a, and a vehicle. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, legally. And, and I'll say, John, legally they can. Right. But there ain't nothing written down that I got to pay for it. Right. Now look, my daughter, it's funny. My oldest, who's a boy. And then my middle, I have three kids. My middle is our daughter who, you know, she started out of the womb really difficult. I mean, I, which is so weird because our oldest started out of the womb, unbelievable, totally compliant and relaxed and super mellow. We thought we were God's gift to parenting with our first. <laughs> and then our second came and within minutes of her birth, we realized, Oh Lord, we have no idea what we're doing. She was that quintessential strong-willed child, and my heavens, her first three years of life, we had so many times holding each other, my wife and I, we'd just hold each other and cry, and i go, <laughs> she's going to end up in prison. Like, we need to just accept this, because she, is, she was so strong, so defiant, and, and like a lot of strong-willed kids, she and I had this kind of moment at about three years old where I didn't break, 
She came close, but it was a five hour, five hour. <laughs> I, I say altercation. It wasn't physical, but it was this five hour battle of wills <laughs> where she had hit me on. She had hit me on the leg because she was mad. I said, hey, you're not allowed to hit daddy. And she looked at me and says, yes, I can. I went, oh, so I put her in the timeout. And then when I came in after three minutes, I went, is it OK to hit daddy? Yes. And that went on for five hours with a nap. There was a nap in there. But for five, you know, the last, the, the, my, my last trip in there, I was practically crawling on the floor in tears, hoping that she could do the right thing. And she finally did. And it was like that moment where Reagan realized, okay, I'm not the boss. Dad and mom are. And, and, and then ever since, she's made great choices in life. As a marriage and family therapist in private practice, I quickly discovered that for most situations, therapy wasn't what most of the couples needed as a first step. After some time of researching why this was so, I discovered that many of the top marriage experts, such as Gary Smalley, John Gottman, and Willard Harley, had discovered the same thing. As counselors and therapists themselves, they had learned that for most who seek out marriage counseling, the best first step is often not to start with counseling, although for many it is often the best second or third step. Like me at this point, you may be wondering to yourself why this is so. Isn't that what everybody in our culture tells us to do when we are having marital problems? Go get counseling? There are several factors that contribute to this phenomenon that would take too long to explain in more than just a few minutes, but a study by the Gottman Institute at the University of Washington showed that when couples start with marriage counseling or therapy, within 24 months, only 17% of them will still be married to each other. I don't know about you, but I would not elect for any medical treatment that said there's an 83% chance of death. Over the past 12 years, I have conducted over 100 marriage intensive workshops. The reason I started doing them in the first place is because they held a promise of a much higher success rate. In fact, two separate studies have concluded that at least 70% of the couples who have attended these workshops are still married. So you see, the results of starting with counseling versus starting with a reputable intensive are overwhelmingly at polar ends of the success spectrum. I still believe in counseling. At any given time, I am working with numerous couples in a one-on-two -on -two counseling type setting. However, these are either premarital couples or couples who have already been through our Love Reboot, a marriage intensive workshop. So, if you have an okay marriage that you would like to be wonderful, if you have a stagnant marriage that seems to be more and more like two people just sharing a roof and bills, if you have recently been separated or considered separation, or either of you have suggested separation, if either one of you has considered or suggested divorce, if there's been a recent affair, or maybe you're just one of the many who has tried all sorts of approaches to growing your marriage, but none of them seem to have a lasting positive effect. If any of these applies, get to the next Love Reboot weekend that you can possibly put on your calendar. I say possibly instead of conveniently because we've seen so many couples who know they need it but can't seem to find a convenient time to make it happen. Suddenly they realize that they've come to a point where it's too late and one or both spouses is no longer willing to try. 
I don't know about you, but it is never convenient for me to set aside three days for something that doesn't sound like a vacation. If I needed a heart transplant, but waited until it was convenient to have the surgery, well, we all know where that goes. Love Reboot is the relational surgery that you know you can't put off any longer. So, join the hundreds of marriages that were once eroding, failing, or headed for divorce, but are now experiencing a thriving, growing relationship with each other because of the new start that they got from attending a Love Reboot weekend. Find out when the next one is by going to our website, growinglovenetwork.org. So what's funny about this, because parents oftentimes think they need to parent equally, right? And that's not the case. It's not going to be equal because you're going to have one kid that you're going to have to constantly you know, rain down or, you know, healthy consequences. And you got another kid who's doing everything right. Well, they don't, you know, so just because my oldest lost the privilege to drive his, that, that car, when my daughters, they're only 21 months apart. When she turned 16, guess what car she got? The Camry, because (laughs) she makes good choices. But it's funny because he, my son used to say, Oh my gosh, you're so strict. And there were so many times I wanted to pull my daughter in to go, hey, uh, what's your opinion about us? Like, do you think we're really strict? And she would say no. I actually asked her this recently in Southern California. She goes to Biola University. And I, uh, I, I can't remember the context, but I just went, you know, what was it? You know, did you feel like I gave a lot of restrictions or was I too? She's like, dad. I can't even think of a restriction I ever had. <laughs> so, but she earned that. Right. Yeah. I think so, so, so many parents are uh, afraid of that, of, of appearing fair to their kids that, and, and they don't understand that. I mean, kids are pretty smart. They will figure they will appeal to your sense of justice in a negative way. They'll try to manipulate that. And you know, well, that's not fair. They got to do this. Well, yeah, they got to do it because, they earn it. Yeah. And, and you're not, you're not behaving in a way. And you know, my, my, our trouble one was our son and uh, in teenage years, but he's now 26 years old that he, he, he would use that fair card on us on a daily basis. But, but, uh, and we just, you know, for the most part, we didn't fall for it. Uh, Now and then he would be pretty good at it where, you know, where you kind of, waffle a little bit but but uh that happened yeah but he he to now to this day he's like you know i can't imagine having uh, better parenting and we're like <laughs> well we messed up a lot but but you know that the, the fact that we didn't bend to that uh you know you're not treating me the same as them uh it was really uh, in the long run had a had a positive impact on it well and i want to say something to I don't know how to describe it um, to the parent or parents listening that may, might be overly controlling or overly fearful, overly concerned that I don't want my child to get hurt or I don't want them to get damaged and I don't want them to experience wounds. And so they, they, you know, helicopter parent or they become overly controlling. You know, I just want to encourage you what's, what breaks my heart. And, and this happened, my daughter for her senior 
her, her senior year in high school prom, right? The big prom thing. She was going with a group of girlfriends who were all amazing. I'd known these girls for years. And Reagan, I think, was the only one with a car. So she was like the driver. And they were all going together. And, and Reagan, they're over at one of the girls' homes getting ready. And a bunch of the moms are over there. And Reagan calls. And she goes, hey, Dad, all the moms, they want to know what my curfew is tonight. And I said, uh, curfew? I go, well, uh, you don't have one. I trust you. She's like, really? I go, Reagan, why wouldn't I? No, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Well, I mean, but they're all saying I need to have a curfew. I went, you do? I go, well, um, let me just ask you this question. <laughs> I go, what time do you want to be home tonight? Which I knew. <laughs> I mean, this was like so easy. And she goes, oh, God. I mean, this was literally her reaction was, oh, gosh. I mean. I had not, no later than midnight. I get so tired. So, and I'm like, that's why Yeah. I go, I don't need to regulate it because you're responsible. And I said, honey, my only, ex my only expectation would be if you're going to be longer than midnight, let me know. I, she doesn't have to come home, right? But if she's somewhere or they're watching a movie, I don't care. Yeah. yeah. She has earned the right. And then what's sad is every one of the mothers there, probably three of them got, really upset and one of them called me and said how dare you not have a boundary and or have a curfew and I went excuse me <laughs> you know she pushed some serious buttons I went excuse me my daughter has earned the right to have my trust and I'm I, until she breaks that I'm not worried about it and then I just you know threw in there and oh by the way that would include your daughter what has your daughter ever done to get in trouble. She's like, well, nothing. I'm like, then what are you worried about? Yeah. Like it, it, it's like people think a curfew. Let, let me tell you about a curfew <laughs> my, with my oldest son. I could set all the curfews I want and he'll go do what he wants within that time limit or he'll just blow through it and get in trouble again. Right. Like, it's not the curfew. The curfew doesn't do anything. Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I love what you said about asking her what time you, it, it, when our kids would come to us, like, you know, asking for permission for something that they knew was going to be kind of iffy that we would grant, you know, offhand our permission. You know, we found that if we just said, well, uh, we want this to be your decision. So you pray about it. And once you pray about it, come back and, and let us know what your decision is. It, it was, you know, it always turned out better because it, it, it put it on them and it put them thinking through it and, and making their own decision. And when they make their own decision, of course, they're, which they're going to do anyway, but when they own it like that, they, they tend to make a better decision. They do. And that's a part of becoming an adult. Right. It's like, at what point do you want your kid to figure this out when they're 30? Yeah. And and they're married, right? And they have children and they've they they've never learned. Or I mean, I'd rather my kid fail miserably at home where right. I can I'm at least there. Yeah. And you know, the consequences at sixteen are very different than consequences at twenty five. Right. Okay, I'll throw you kind a, of actually, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, you're fine. I was going to throw you a curveball. So let, let's say we had a call-in person right now. Say, okay, this is easy for you to say. I, I got a 17-year-old child who's always breaking their curfews and 
they've been a, inappropriate with the opposite sex and they're coming to me and saying, uh, I want to date this person and we want to go and stay out as long as we want and go wherever we want. And what, what would you, how would you address that? I have that 17 year old. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I can tell you exactly what I did. My, you know, he would, he, oh, there was some girl and I, you know, about that age that I did not like. I mean, you know, I didn't like, I could tell she was trouble and because frankly, my son was trouble. So frankly, just her interest in him told me a lot, <laughs> right? Gave me a good idea of her, her moral compass. Mm -hmm. And so my response to that is, is that, Hey son, I don't, this is not someone that I think is the best for you, but you got to make your choices in life. And so what that means, and I, I have this conversation and he goes, well, what does that mean? Because I said, I'm not going to support this relationship, but you, you can make whatever decision you want. He's like, well, what does that mean? You're like, what do you mean you're not going to support? I go, well, what that means is you don't have a car, and so I'm not going to drive you to go meet her. I'm not going to drive the two of you out on a date. I'm not going to pay for dates. I'm not going to pay for this. I'm not. So, I mean, you know, if that's someone you want to date, go for it. But you're going to have to figure out how to work it out independent from me because it's not someone that I would, that, that I would be supportive of. And that's when they're living in your home and they're really dependent on you financially. At this point, when now he's 21, uh, if you know, I'd have a, I'd have a, a bit of a different attitude in the sense of if he brings home a young lady or brings home a lady, a woman that he's dating. And if I don't approve, I'm not saying squat unless he asks. So if he comes to me and goes, hey, what do you think? With very soft kit gloves, I might try to go, well, here's the things that are positive and here are the things that might concern me. But, you know, I'd, I'd be curious. You know, it would be a, a much more of an adult conversation. But even if I didn't like her, I'm telling you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ban her from my home, right? I, I, I've seen parents do that kind of a thing where, I don't approve of this person, so they're not welcomed in our household. Now, look, obviously, if she was a drug dealer or a human trafficker, yes, I would definitely put down a, a very firm boundary. But just because I don't like her, my son's an adult, I'm not going to reject someone. Like, that's not how Christ did it. And, 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 I, I, and actually, I can, my parents, uh, we, oh, I was probably, I was probably 13, 14 15 years old-ish, and the president of my dad's board at the time, we were living in Arizona, his daughter got pregnant in Waco. She was, I think, in her 20s, and she got pregnant in Waco out of wedlock, and in those times, that was a much bigger deal, and especially in Waco, Texas. So she came to live with us, and then she met another guy in Phoenix who I loved. His name was Michael. My name's Michael. We bonded immediately. We used to go to the park and play like a really good, loving, Christian, like amazing guy, played basketball collegiately. Well, he proposed to Penny and, and my parents, out of protest, refused to go to their wedding. And that was a decision that they have regretted ever since. 
and apologized for it afterwards because even in those moments, I know, I, well, I mean, I've had family, a cousin who is lesbian and, and was getting and married her partner. And there were some of our family. I was out of the country when the wedding happened, but I would have gone. And I know that there are Christians out there that are going to be furious with this, but I don't know how you read the gospel and then walk away thinking it's appropriate to reject someone because you disagree with their choices. I can disagree with someone's choices and love them Amen. and be there and say, I love you. I don't love this decision, but I love you. So I'm here. And that was one of the things I learned from my parents. That was a really powerful lesson is that, you know, it would hurt. And so if my son was marrying a woman that I was really freaked out about or whatever, if she was a drug addict, Oh, that'd be a painful wedding. It'd be painful, but I'd be there. Right. Yeah. Because it's not like rejecting them is going to bring them around. Yeah. Show me one person that you, that you agree with all their choices in the first place. So exactly. wh- why, why are you choosing certain choices? Uh, to, they do. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Christians just choose, pick and choose. Well, you know, like when I was a kid or growing up, it was like smoking. Smoking's of the devil. Now, obviously, smoking is unhealthy, but it was like, man, if someone smoked cigarettes, they were like, that was out. the line. That was the line. Yeah, like you I were going to days. hell. Yeah. Oh, oh my lord! It was like what? Yeah. And now <laughs> it's enough. homosexuality. Yeah. And it, you know, again, I don't. Just, yeah, I'm, just I'm, ridiculous. I'm with you 100 on that. Um. It's you know I I think so many parents they they see a train wreck coming in uh, you know somebody that their child is dating or seeing and they try to stop the train wreck and their efforts to stop it just speed it up and probably make it bigger wreck than it is and I think I think a part of that is that that, that we have this thing is that we want to. We, we want to be able to say, I did everything I could, but sometimes doing everything we could. In fact, very often I see that doing everything we can actually becomes uh, codependent, that we, we, we speed up the process. We make the process work by trying to stop the train wreck. Yeah, we, well, we, I agree with you. We make everything worse. We make everything more difficult. And, you know, what's hard about parenting is if you have a child, that is making poor choices. It's hard not to initially kind of take that personally. Like, how did I fail? What did I do wrong? But at some point you have to realize that, look, I may have done things that set my kid up to make dumb choices, but at the end of it, the, and they're going to have to stand before Christ and be held accountable for their own decisions. It ain't going to be because I was a bad parent. And and by the way, you can be a great parent and your child reject it right. and choose to make poor, unhealthy, unloving decisions. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. Now, what I have learned to do in my own life is I will pray. And, you know, I had a tough conversation with my 21-year-old, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago. And he had made a comment that I just, you know, what did he, gosh, I mean, it, it pierced through my heart and we, you know, we're still struggling with him, and we still, uh, you know, just actively pray for him because he does have difficulty making good choices. 
And so he and I are into this conversation, but he just said, I just want to hear something positive from my father. Now I can tell you full disclosure, my immediate thought was try doing something positive and I will, <laughs> and I will highlight that. Like there's no tomorrow. Right. But thank the Lord. I, I did not utter those words. <laughs> and, but that was my initial feeling. But then the Holy spirit kicked in and, and God was like, listen, man, you are so focused in on the choices that you don't like. He's not an evil person. There are good things about him. There are good things he is doing despite the hurtful choices. Stop defining him. And so it was maybe a day or two later that I called and said, hey, will you forgive me? And Great. you know how God works. I'm like, I'm at a conference called ARC, the Association of Related Churches. It's in Birmingham. It's huge. Thousands of people. And the first night, uh, Pastor Chris Hodges, you know, I'm sitting there trying to enjoy myself and, and let all the other dysfunctional people in the audience, you know, hear his words. And it was, man, it was like the Holy Spirit gave that talk specifically for me. And it just pierced me, <laughs> it pierced through everything to where, yeah, I had to, man, when I got back to the hotel, I had to call him and go, Hey. I need to ask your forgiveness because you're right. I have not been very affirming about anything and that's wrong. And, and here's what I can affirm. And, yeah. and you know, and I affirmed him because our children need that. Oh you yeah. Know, a lot of we're, we're talk we're talking about dating and the biggest fear, right? Is I don't want my kid to have sex and I don't want her to get pregnant or I don't want him to get someone pregnant or whatever. And the best preventative thing you can do as a parent is love that child unconditionally right because the healthier they feel and the and the more accepted and loved they feel by you the the, the less desire there's going to be to act out and i mean I, how many times have kids right. tried to behave in a way to see does mom or dad really love me yeah you're right i had a guy oh go ahead go ahead oh no I, well i had a father who who very proudly in front of his daughter and wife said, she knows if she ever gets pregnant, she's kicked out of the house. He said that right in front of me, the daughter and the mom. And I went, okay, uh, ma'am, you know, hon, can you, can the two of you please step out? I need to say something privately to your, to, you know, to your father. And they're like, Oh, okay. And they walked down. I was just writing on my pad of paper and I didn't say a word because I like to use silence. <laughs> it makes people feel horribly uncomfortable. And so I was just writing and writing and writing. And he finally went, what are you doing? You said you had something to say. I go, hold on. I'm almost done. And I, you know, kind of finished and I handed him my notepad and on it, it said guaranteed pregnancy contract. <laughs> and then I had a, 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 the date and then I had a signature line. He goes, what is this? I went, no, I just, I want you to make it official and sign it. He's like, what are you talking about? I go, Sir, your daughter wants to know that you love her no matter what. And you just told her there's one thing you could do where I won't love you. And she's going to go running out and do that to test your love. So you've just practically guaranteed that that's going to be her choice in life. And, and shocker of shockers, you know, he had found her uh, uh, with another boy. Like she, she was young, 14, at, at like two in the morning, snuck the boy into the home. Right. So that's my point with like these rigid boundaries. Your kid is going to get around them. So to think that you can prevent them from 
disobeying you is literally absurd. And the more harsh you are, the more you're going to drive that behavior into the darkness. All right. Yeah. Since it's launched less than two years ago, Relationship Rewire is now averaging more than 35,000 downloads per month. We are rapidly realizing that this effective tool is helping more and more marriages than we could imagine. But Relationship Rewire is not all we do. In fact, most of the time and energy is spent directly with couples and spouses. About once a month, we conduct a three-day intensive workshop for marriages called Love Reboot. Earlier this year, I completed my 100th marriage intensive. Thousands of marriages have been saved and numerous families are still intact and now thriving as a result. We've also developed a marriage course that is taken by thousands of couples, individuals, and engaged couples called Growing Love. Growing Love is so effective that the state of Texas has designated it as a Together in Texas course. Engaged couples who complete the course don't have to pay the state marriage license fee. We've also trained more than 100 couples to facilitate and lead effective marriage courses. We began Growing Love Network because we saw two big things that were lacking in the marriage help world. First of all, most approaches to marriage help are not effective. Even though they may be interesting and provide good information, they often leave people with little more than a few ideas and tools which they now expect the other spouse to be better at practicing. This new raised bar of expectations now only leads to further frustration and resentment. Growing Love Network is revolutionizing the way marriage help is done by working on the hearts and minds of the individual spouse, helping each spouse to focus on what they themselves can do rather than trying to change each other. This is one reason why our success rates are so much higher than other traditional approaches. Also, we began Growing Love Network on a model that makes it available to anyone, regardless of ability to pay. For example, other effective marriage intensives start out at over $2,000, and most are $3,500 and above, with no scholarship assistance available for those who cannot afford it. Love Reboot is less than half their price, and about half of the couples who attend receive scholarship assistance, thanks to our donors. Simply put, without donors, we cannot do what we do. I want you to consider one more thing. Most or all of the organizations and causes you might give to are what philanthropy experts would refer to as downstream philanthropy. Imagine you and several friends are standing on the banks of a river as you begin to notice several people floating by as they struggle to keep from drowning. Your natural instinct, and rightly so, would be to jump in and start rescuing them. But if more and more people kept floating by, struggling for their lives, eventually somebody is going to consider going upstream and attempt to prevent what is causing all these people from falling in the river in the first place. Downstream philanthropy is staying downstream, focusing on the symptoms instead of the cause. Upstream philanthropy saves time, energy, and resources by tackling the problems at their source. A recent study showed that a conservative estimate is that a single divorce costs us taxpayers an average of $30,000. This is largely due to the fact that children of divorce are much more likely to be involved in many of the things we donate to preventing or subduing, such as teenage pregnancy, poverty, hunger, 
substance abuse, crime, emotional and psychological disorders, incarceration, and subsequent divorce, further perpetuating the cycle. So you see, it would be difficult to find a better bang for your donation buck than contributing to Growing Love Network and supporting this podcast as well as the many other ways we are turning this tide. Take a moment and ask God if this is what you should do right now. If the answer is yes, hit pause and go to growinglovenetwork.org and click on the donate button. As a way of showing our appreciation, we won't continue until you hit the play button. So now you're, you're talking about something we talked started with last time, and I wanted to explore that a little bit more. You know, you, you talked about how important this building your relationship with your child. You want them to come and talk to you. You want them not in the darkness with the things that they're dealing with and struggling with. And do you want to just have that, that uh, be able to talk to them before they ever go down those paths about things? Uh, so developing this relationship, you know, it's it's real easy when they're young to feel like you have a good relationship. But then when they really start to try to test their, you know, their anonymity and their um, uh, their their own power and, and uh, place in the world, then that starts to change rapidly. And and keeping that that dialogue, keeping that relationship takes, uh, I, in my opinion, even more work than it did when they were younger. What are some what are some ways that you can actively develop that relationship during the the teen years? I, I think you start with being well. One, you start with being purposeful or intentional. So you, at some point, you need to go. Hey, it's important that my kid knows I love them no matter what, and so I'm going to verbalize that. I'm going to show that to them in action. One of the cool ways that my father did for me as a child that I now do for my own children is, and it sounds goofy, but it, it makes a difference is when, when like when our kid, well, when, when I was teenager and junior high, if I came into a room that he was already in, he would just light up and just go, Oh my gosh, this is the greatest 13 year old on the planet. And he'd, he'd be goofy about it but he would be verbal. And, and even though I would complain and be, Oh my gosh, dad, you're so weird. He would whistle and cheer and clap. And I'd be like, Oh my gosh, what is wrong with you? But I never asked him to stop. Interestingly enough, I never said, stop doing that. I don't want you to do that. I, I would definitely go, Oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? You're such a weirdo. And you know, but I never ever seriously sat him down and said, I need you to, stop doing that. And so I think coming up with sort of your DNA and whatever your personality is, but my, like my wife, even though she was a cheerleader in college and she definitely can have high energy, she's not a hyper person. That is not her person. She's a, in our animal so, person. So got she's it a lion. You. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, my wife is a lion beaver. So she's that style. I'm an off the chart otter, super playful. But even she does it. And so when our kids wake up, and even this morning, uh, I'm, I was up in my studio doing work, which is r right next to my son's bedroom, my, my youngest, my 16-year-old. And when he walked by, I cheered and clapped. and was like, oh, my gosh, you're awake. This is amazing. 
And and so if you want them to feel unconditionally loved, you need to tell them they're unconditionally loved. That's something my children have heard thousands of times. Is you, you know, don't forget, Daddy loves you no matter what, from birth to this day currently. Even when I'm having that difficult conversation with my 21-year-old in California, I I am telling him, listen, I am so sorry that you're hurting and that you're suffering, but I love you no matter what. So whether we agree or not on the choices you're making, that does not change the fact that I love you unconditionally. Yeah. So, so and, and, and yeah, you got to prove it. And because here'd be the last thing you got to prove it in the difficult moment. Right. So when you're, when you get that call and your kid got pulled over for drinking and driving, how do you react? When you find your kid with another kid, whatever, doing things, how do you react? When you catch that kid cheating on, or that he gets caught at school cheating on the test, or you catch your child in a lie, how do you react? If you react in an ugly manner, if if you're shaming and critical, then you're telling them, I, I don't really love you. Those big moments, I'm telling you, don't mess those up. That just, that just reminds me, uh, our son, uh, he was all oh, probably 22. And it was a time when we, we had had to get really tough. We basically, well, we cut him loose on his own. We said, we, uh, you have, uh, we'll pay for your phone so that you have a way to get in touch with us. And uh, we will, um, we, you are welcome at our table any night for dinner. And we always, we made that table time really important that we, we didn't do any kind of correction, any kind of addressing problems at, at the table. So the, the kids always knew that that was a safe place for them to be. But so he would, he would come home probably three times a week and have dinner with us and he'd left. And, and I, I knew he, uh, you know, he'd already gotten a ticket for texting and driving and, and he left, we had just got, had a conversation before he left, no texting. Well, 10 minutes later, I get a call. He's been in a wreck. I said, were you texting? And he said, well, I was looking down. I had dropped, son, were you texting? Yes, I was. So, okay, I'm on my way. It's just a five-minute drive, but the the whole first four minutes I was going, I am going to rip into him. We just talked about this. You know, he's going to lose his car. And and he totaled the car. Uh, But I I had to pray, and and I, I think it was – yeah, well, and I don't think it was the Holy Spirit that, you know, the first thing that I should have said and I did end up saying after prayer was, are you okay? Is Are you hurt anywhere? But that was the last thing on my mind. I was On the way there, I was thinking, I hope he's hurt. Yeah. I hope he's hurt just enough to, to teach him the lesson. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Well, and it, I got woken up one time when he was a teen, older teenager. At two in the morning, the, the doorbell rings, and of course, I'm in my underwear, nothing else, because it's two in the morning, and I'm not thinking. And I go to the so door, you're, and you're I, not a I'm like, guy either. Yeah, no. And so I, I go to the door, and I just open it, and there's a cop, a female <laughs> cop. <laughs> and she's kind of, you know, and I'm not exactly rocking the body I had when I was, when I was 21. <laughs> I'll just say that much. 
And I mean, I'm standing there in all my glory, and here's this female cop. Most of it, anyway. You're kind of get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she 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 gives me the once over look, like up and down, like okay. And I went, well, she's, hello, she's officer. Going, now, now this all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's like, I'm like, well, hello, officer. She goes, well, hello, sir. I clearly I woke you up and. Yes, you did, and I really regret not putting pants on. And she laughed, and, and and I just went, "Can I like? Can you excuse me for one thing?" She's like, "Absolutely." So I run back, put clothes on, come back out, and there's my son with two of his friends in the back of a cop car. They had been doorbell ditching a girl's home in the middle of the night. Which okay, fine, go doorbell ditch. That's you know, you're not hurting anybody. You know them. She was a friend. These idiots doorbell ditched. And then went back and did it again. And it was like the fifth time the father was so furious that he hid by the door. So when, when, my, when the friend went and rang it, he popped out, grabbed him, threw him in the house, locked the door, and called the police. Which I would have done. You know, it's like doorbell ditch once, okay. You know, like eight times later. That, yeah. Thing, you're either, and in Texas, you're going to get shot. So they're, <laughs> yeah, they're lucky. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But those are the moments, even that, that, you know, I, I, I well, first of all, when they're in the back of a cop car, there's really nothing I need to say. Right. <laughs> he was terrified, right? To, to, almost to tears. And I just went back there and went, well, what's, what's up? <laughs> and he started crying and I, we were doing, he explained the whole thing. And, and, and I actually asked the cop, I went, Hey, before we got to the car, I went, I give you permission to scare the tar out of these boys. So she got them all out of the car. She berated, well, not like in a dishonoring way, but like in a tough cop way yeah. and was saying that I have no other choice but to take you to juvenile right now. And they, the three of those boys were like, you know, they're, <laughs> they started falling and, and then she and I start laughing and then they're looking around like, wait, what's going on? So, you know, the big moments you got to get right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Take a breath, pray about it for sure. Well, I'm going to shift gears. Um, couple, couple questions. We're, we're running out of time here. I don't want to keep you from doing your job. Um, so, you know, roughly half of marriages in our culture today start out by cohabiting by the, the couple living together. Um, you and I both know that the, the data on that just uh, every way you look at it says it's a bad idea. But I think a lot of people would go, why is it a bad idea? Uh, you, most people don't know the data in the first place. They don't know that the data says it's a bad idea. But um, now that we're saying this, what, what, why is it a bad idea? Well, and, and let me clarify, too. This data isn't data made up by some ignorant, you know, fundamentalist, conservative, weirdo people that don't know how to do research. These are this data is coming out of places like the University of Denver, the University of Chicago, like uh, University of Washington. I mean, like major research hubs and from some of the top researchers in the world on relationships. And all the data says the worst thing you could do for your relationship is cohabitate because the vast majority of people who cohabitate end up breaking breaking up whether that be before they get married or after they get married so it's it, that's what i tell people is that, that is the if you really care about this person the last thing on earth you want to do is cohabitate and here's why for me the number one reason 
you don't cohabitate is because it's a lie. Because you cohabitate because you think, hmm, let's test marriage out to see if this is going to be the right person. And if we can be successful, the problem is you're not married. There is a very big difference on that wedding day. You have the wedding. You have now 100 or 200 or three. We have 300 people at our wedding. 300 witnesses watched you give your vows, heard you say till death do us part. But then something very significant after that occurs. You sign your marriage license. And that is the difference. Because now I can't just walk away. Now I got to get divorced. And getting divorced is way bigger of a thing than just breaking up because we're dating and we're living together. So that's the problem with cohabitation is couples think, all right, we're, we're, we're just like a married couple. And the problem is, no, you're not. You cannot replicate the intensity that marriage creates. You just can't. Outside of marriage, you cannot replicate that. So the problem is you're deceiving yourself. Because the truth is when you're cohabitating, all I have to do to get away from you is leave. I don't have to sign anything unless I was dumb enough to you know, co-sign right. a lease or whatever, which happens, and that makes it a mess. But, I mean, for the most part, I don't have to do anything. And then just, I just, just walk that, away. Just that dynamic changes the way you relate to that person. If you know – it. I can just walk away. You treat the person differently and they treat you differently. You do. Yeah, absolutely. You're pretending. You're pretending to be married and you think it's the same thing because then here's the shock. If you go habitate, then that's your expectation of marriage. Then you get married. You sign that freaking document and all of a sudden everything's more intense and you're like, whoa, where was this attitude before we got married? And whoa, and hey, you're a totally different person. And they start melting down because they weren't really married yet. Right. And, yeah. and, the, and, it, and that's the difficulty of marriage. Like, I love being married and I love having children and I love everything that comes with it. But the problem with marriage is the intensity of the relationship is exponentially greater than that of just a dating relationship. Right. Cause that's whole, what makes marriage. Yeah. It's what makes it more difficult. Yeah. It, it was, I mean, you're it, like, it would be you're like in. the way I like to say is it would be like trying to see what uh, owning a car would be like by renting a car. Exactly. You, you know, you're, exactly. you're not, you know, when you rent a car, you don't vacuum it and change the oil and wash it and, and, make sure you park away from people who are going to ding your door. You know, (laughs) that's a great word picture. You treat it totally different. You don't have to do, you don't have to do any of the maintenance, right? You just get to go have fun. Oh, and guess what? That, this is actually a great, I'm going to steal this from you. I'll I'll give you credit the first time, but then, you know, (laughs) second time on it, it comes my own guy, some guy in Texas. And then, yeah, yeah. I know how, I know how this, this guy. (laughs) Yeah. But, my, one of my dad's best friends in life is a guy named Jim Shaughnessy, who is insane. The guy is insane. And when, when we would travel together and he would rent a car, he was so insane because of that insurance, because it was a rental, because it wasn't his. 
and he would do things with that rental car that you would never do if you actually owned the car and you were actually responsible <laughs> for the car. <laughs> I actually remember we were we were at a marriage conference early in our marriage with with my in-laws, my father-in-law and mother-in-law. And it was in, we lived in Colorado. They lived out in West Texas and, it, and this was in Dallas, Fort Worth. So we had, we flew there and we got a rental car and he's trying to get all our suitcases in the trunk. And he literally gets up on the trunk and starts jumping up and down on it to get it to shut. <laughs> and, yeah. and I said, well, whoa, whoa, I said, whoa, Bobby goes, uh, it's a rental. <laughs> and so, that is exactly how you treat it. And so yeah. when you purchase a car, everything comes becomes better and you own it and there's benefit to that but there's also difficulty because now i'm changing the oil and now we have to take care of it and now we don't want it to get dented because right. it's our responsibility okay let me throw another one at you so our, our culture talks a, a lot about compatibility these days we're not compatible we you know what do you think of that whole concept we actually wrote a book called More Than a Match. And what my opinion about, okay, first of all, compatibility is fine. It's great. I think compatibility helps eliminate some of the stupid conflict that people who are incompatible get into. So for example, my wife and I, we are totally incompatible. Like eHarmony would- Would have kicked flagged. you out for, yeah. <laughs> no, they would have flagged our profiles. We never would have met. They've been like, don't let these two people meet because they'll kill themselves and probably others. And so the reason we wrote more than a match and, and why the title is more than a being a match is great, but that doesn't mean you're not going to have conflict. And that's always been my concern in this compatibility culture is that, Hey, we met on eHarmony, which is fine. I, I endorse healthy dating sites. Like I do not endorse the, flip left, flip right. Dang, right. I can't even think of the name. Yeah, Tinder. Uh, Tinder. Yeah. I, I, that's like a hookup thing, and I don't endorse that. But eHarmony and even Match.com has gotten more grown up. And so if there's a legitimate compatibility engine driving, you know, the profile and the assessment and all that, then I, I, it's a great way to meet. But you still have to learn how to love well. And so for me... I don't, you know, my wife and I almost, we, we made kind of the finals of becoming the uh, expert host for that show, Married at First Sight. Yeah, yeah. You and Yeah, and the reason, again, that I'm willing to take two total strangers and marry them, but if they're committed to learning how to love each other well, they're going to be fine. Because even if you're compatible, like I have some very dear friends of mine, husband and wife are highly compatible. I mean, wow. And they still have had some major wounds and major conflict. And none of it really to do with their compatibility. That's just life. So that, you know, if you're, if you're compatible, then it's naive to think that, okay, we're good. We don't have to worry about it. Well, that's just not true. Now, my wife and I being incompatible, that is also okay. All it means is my wife and I are going to use more conflict resolution than someone who's compatible. And so it sounds like what you're saying is, is a better measure of, of how well you're going to get along is, is, is your ability to, to deal with differences than 
Yeah. It's not so much about similarities. Similarities are great and they help, but the big, the big, uh, breaking point is, is going to, is how do you deal with the differences? Cause there's always going to be differences no matter how like you are. It, it, well, not only just differences, I might, I might actually phrase it more like a two sided coin. If you really want to have a healthy relationship on the one side of the coin is how do you handle adversity? So that could be adversity from your spouse, from your children, from your in-laws, from life, from jobs, bot, I mean, anything, right? So how do we handle adversity? So when it gets tough, how do we react with each other? That's the one side of the coin. Right. The other side of the coin is how affirming are we? So how often am I taking the time to tell my wife I love you? How often am I taking the time to notice small things or to appreciate her and to verbally say that. And, and frankly, how many times am I chilling off of a negative reaction of hers? Maybe, maybe she got a little stimpy. Maybe she didn't say exactly what I wanted to hear. How many times do I give her grace for that? Yeah. Right. How many times do I look over a negative and choose to see a positive? So how affirming are we? And then also how do we handle adversity? That's okay. I like that. That's a, a different uh, model that, that, I, that I'm going to borrow from you now. <laughs> I, hey, I have never said that. I, <laughs> right when you made that comment, in my brain, I'm like, hey, that could be my next book. I yeah. like how I'm summarizing this. <laughs> you can just call it heads or tails or heads and I tails. Know. Heads and tails. Hell, yeah. yeah, heads and tails. <laughs> okay, so it kind of sounds like what uh, – well, I'm going to throw this statement out because it kind of sounds a little bit about what you're saying. But, uh, you know, uh, you and I talked a, a bit about this term soulmate, which I, I like the term and I hate the term. I don't know about you. It's it sounds nice. It sounds romantic. It almost sounds godly in a way. But the way our culture uses it, the, the idea that there's somebody out there out of these, uh, what, seven billion people, uh, you know, that down to, you know, Sex. So there's three and a half billion people out there, and and I, if I find that one, then it's all going to work great. That that's just a ludicrous idea uh, in the first place. But uh, then it also sets us up for this whole thing that I don't have to grow, I don't have to get better at loving because if I find my soulmate, then then there it's just going to work fine. So I can just stay in my arrested development here, and, and I'm, I'm going to be happy. So it sounds like a statement I get from that is is finding a soulmate is more about becoming a soulmate. It's not about finding that person out there, but more about becoming. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. It, I hate actually there. I have no positive feelings at all towards the term soulmate. <laughs> and the reason is because our, and especially here in America, because we're so wealthy comparatively to the rest of the world, we have the luxury, the luxury to complain and to be annoyed by the most ridiculously meaningless things. And for me, the term soulmate says I, that, that to me just speaks to passion, romance and feelings and, and feelings are totally unreliable. And, and, and so for me, I, and, and I mean, the model Christ gives us is that love is a decision. Love is an action. Love is a choice. Love is not a feeling. Right. It is not that butterfly, not in your stomach. Oh my gosh, this must be love. No, it, 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 it must be eros or erotic or lustful. 
and, and I don't mean those in a pornographic or negative way. It's great or just to be warm fuzzies. Yeah, and that's great to experience those. That ain't life. And yeah, so, by the way, so we're 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 taking off is, our yeah. our we're taking off our Christian hat here. That we're we're both speaking as yeah, we psychologists are. here. That that there is no feeling called love in in psychology. It's every feeling nor in the Bible. Yeah, every feeling that you can that have is, can be love. Yeah. Yeah, and and so what's funny is well, I don't know if it's funny. Maybe it's more tragic, but if love is a feeling, then it is going to be this neurotic train wreck up and down roller coaster that goes nowhere and ends up crashing. You know, my wife is arguably unequivocally a beautiful woman. She, she was when I met her and somehow she keeps getting even more gorgeous. Uh, as the years go on, she's like one of those weird celebrity people. She just doesn't age. <laughs> I, I have I have the same she's, experience. Yeah, I know what you. Yeah, mean. she's just fantastically gorgeous. Not hey, with your what? wife. I don't know. With my wife. Yeah. No. 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 Yes. Of course. <laughs> but I. But here's the here's the re, here's the truth. Yeah, she's gorgeous. Am I always turned on by her? Heck no. Because there's times where she's being a big jerk, or she's being selfish. She's not being very nice, and I, mean, I don't care how hot my wife is. I'm not going to be attracted to that. I'm not going to feel good about that just because she's attractive. And then you, you can go the opposite where, you know, when she married me, I was ripped and a big time athlete. And, and uh, yeah, let's just say that over the years, I, you know, without not a so coach much. screaming at me to, well, yeah, not to, to work out. I didn't work out. And, and that has caught up to me and, and I'm overweight. And so, you know, the world would like to think that, if based on emotions, then my wife's not going to find me attractive. If you just base it on, you know, base emotions. However, because she can choose and because I know, and I make a priority to love her well and to put her needs above my own and to serve her and to love her unconditionally, she finds me highly attractive. And that's not an excuse to say, well, I can be unhealthy and overweight. You have to get over it. But, the, but you know, I had an intensive once with a couple where the wife was attacked at this, she, I don't know what she was, a manager at some, uh, some facility and manufacturing plant and a, a guy that they did not know was stalking her, uh, to, poured a bucket of acid over her. Oh, and she was a, she was a beautiful woman. Well, after that bucket of acid, no, no. I mean, we're talking hundreds of surgeries and, and, and she's hard to look at. It's hard because she's so wounded and scarred and disfigured. Mm. So I, when I met with them and the husband privately was like, I don't know what to do. I said, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If you're waiting to feel attracted to her, it's never going to happen. Mm. You're going to have to choose to feel attracted and you're going to have to choose to appreciate other things than just looks that will then bring those feelings that you're wanting. And months and months later, that's what had happened. His heart had, his heart had transitioned. He had made important choices. And, and, and the line, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, is totally true. Yeah. So you're just shattering everything. I, I, I just thought it was all about following your heart. No. <laughs> oh. Yeah, no. That, yeah. Oh man, when couples come to me in crisis, and they're like, "I just don't, I just, I just don't feel it anymore. 
I, I just, I've lost, I just fell out of love. Oh my heavens. It's everything I can do not to smack them. <laughs> you anyway. cannot. Yeah. You cannot no, fall out of love. Yeah. You can't. You choose to stop loving this person. Exactly. Knock it off. Yeah. And a lot of times in loving ways, I basically go grow up. Like it doesn't always go well and it's difficult and your job and that's the thing about being a follower of Christ is, unfortunately, <laughs> Jesus doesn't give us an out. In fact, he says, when someone's enslaving you, mistreating you, being ugly to you, that's really when I want you to love them. Yeah, that's that's when the that's when test, I want you to forgive. Yeah, that's the that's when the test of if you really love comes out. Yeah. Well, hey, next time. Uh, if, if, if I can get you on here again sometime in the future, let's just talk about diet and exercise and, and, uh, we'll compare notes there and, and, and aging. <laughs> yeah, we can, uh, I'll, I'll have to have my wife on for that one. I don't, I don't want to be totally. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, I had to, I'm on, I'm on a, uh, a, try not to have chips stocked in the pantry right now. Cause I just, man, chips, I don't, I don't, when I was a kid, I, you know, they're okay, but I just have a craving for chips. <laughs> yeah. Constant. I know how that feels. <laughs> oh, well, it's been great. I, I think we got some good stuff out of you, Michael. I really appreciate you being on and I hope we, yeah, thanks for having me. Well, you, you have a great time there and in, in all the places you're going, Baton Rouge, DC, Mexico, and then two months in, South Africa. I hope that 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 uh, you let God bless you, uh, use you to bless the people that you're around. I know He will, and I appreciate you uh, being appreciate on here. It. It's it's always hey, been thanks fun. for having me. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Yeah, Lots of fun. Alrighty, take care. Thanks. Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize relationships for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this or any of our episodes. Send us an email to relationshiprewire at gmail.com. Be on the lookout for our next episode where you just might get to hear Michael Smalley say, I mean, I'm standing there in all my glory. <laughs> <laughs>